Hey, the first Cold War worked so well. Let's just escalate another Cold War with Russia and China. I don't know. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. When I was younger and more naive, I really thought wars were temporary, awful things that most regrettably were sometimes necessary and tragically required for our survival against serious, truly existential threats. Yeah, well, today we have uh, much more than what outgoing President Eisenhower warned us against his famous 1961 speech about the power of what had become a military-industrial complex. Today we have a national security state which encompasses not just a war-based economy, but rearranges real power in what maintains the appearance of democracy. As defined in his book Brave New World Order, Jack Nelson Pomai says... The first characteristic of a national security state is that the military is the highest authority. It not only guarantees the security of the state against all internal and external enemies, it has enough power to determine the overall direction of society. National security states often maintain an appearance of democracy. However, ultimate power rests with the military or within a broader national security establishment. Another characteristic of a national security state is that the military and related sectors wield substantial political and economic power. They do so in the context of an ideology which stresses that freedom and development are possible only when capital is concentrated in the hands of elites. The most obvious attribute of a national security state is obsession with enemies. Defending against external or internal enemies becomes a leading preoccupation of the state, a distorting factor in the economy and a major source of national identity and purpose. In other words, you gotta have an enemy. There's, there cannot not be an enemy when the national security state rules. So now we have a new generally liberal president, at least in terms of domestic policy, but So far, at least, the winds of political change only go so far when the power of the military-industrial complex remains intact. Or, as the group XTC sang, generals and majors always seem so unhappy unless they got a war. So here's Joe Biden, definitely to the left of Clinton and Obama on so many issues, but he's clearly in the mold of FDR when it comes to boosting the economy for those Not in the top 1%, public works jobs, taking on climate change, but in terms of military policy, well, that's another story. Perhaps motivated by his predecessor's insistence that Biden is under the spell of a powerful China, his cabinet speaks with one voice, we're tough on China and Russia. The Cold War is back. Our guest today, Dave Lindorf, has some thoughts on this developing story. His latest article is titled, Let's Stop Pretending Russia and China Are Military Threats. Dave Lindorf, thanks so much for being back with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks for having me on. 
Well, uh, Nation contributor Dave Lindorf is an American investigative reporter, a columnist for Counterpunch, and a contributor to Business Week, The Nation, London Review of Books, Extra, and Sellon.com. His work was highlighted by Project Censored 2004, 2011, and 2012. He's co-founder of ThisCan'tBeHappening.net. He's author of four books, and he was a, hung, a 1990s Hong Kong China correspondent for Business Week. Ooh, there's a lot going on in Hong Kong these days. Well, again, thanks for being with us. And America's founders were very specifically requiring approval by Congress before a war could be declared. Obviously, it's proven quite easy to slither around that provision by initiating consistently aggressive military actions that are not declared wars. And in my very amateur remembrance of the history of the last few presidents, it does appear that whatever the military-industrial complex, no matter the administration, Democrat, Republican, they get everything they ask for and more. In civilian matters, the police are there to enforce the laws, not make them. So how is it, Dave, that the War Department, euphemistically titled Defense, gets to set policy over and over again? Well, you, you, you've nailed it with the national security state that was set up by Harry Truman and, you know, took off from there um, that <clears throat> we we basically surrender the the high ground of government in the United States to the military. And uh, and from there, there's very little left <laughs> for our democracy to deal with, um, you know. One of the point I, I want to jump in at uh, it, that you made about um, the the um, lack of congressional authorization for American military action. There's a belief among most Americans that the important issue is whether Congress approves a military action or not. But actually, all military actions the U.S. has engaged in since the Korean War, at least, and that was kind of a sham, mm-hmm. uh, have been illegal because they haven't had uh, the approval of the Security Council. And and in fact, you know, the United States has no right to engage in military action under the U.N. Charter, which we helped author and which is a treaty that, that has the... Uh, you know, the force of law in the United States equal to the Constitution by the way our Constitution describes treaties. So, um, you know, we we can't just because Congress says it's OK for the United States to bomb Syria or, or uh, it's OK for the United States to uh, invade Iraq um, doesn't make it so. It's illegal. But and we we've forgotten that. Yeah, well, it's not profitable without enemies, I guess. And as you mentioned, the Cold War was kick-started in 1947 with the Truman Doctrine. And i it's amazing to me. Perhaps you can describe, and we're talking about the return of the Cold War. Perhaps you can describe how actual wars of national liberation got stuffed into the box of democracy versus Stalinism. How did that happen? Well, basically, the, the, it's ironic that it, it happened um, after it wasn't really true. You know, if you look at the if you look at the history of communism, um, you had 
a bunch of of revolutionaries in the in the early 1900s who really believed that world revolution was in the offing and that a world revolution was what was needed to liberate uh, sure. the working class. Yeah. That, and and the idea was you know a mar- very Marxian idea that you know the uh, people who make things should control that the sure. process and own own the means of production and um so you know they they believed that there was this uh dynamic that was you know unstoppable uh, that workers would eventually right. take the reins of power from the capitalists that own all the all the uh, machines and the factories sure. and run them themselves what what happened was that that you know when the russian revolution Succeeded beyond its wildest dreams and ousted the um, the uh, bourgeoisie from control in mm. 1917. They were in charge of a country that was incredibly backwards, mostly uh, mostly uh, an agricultural sure. society, yeah. and they also for, were faced with a unified attack from all the capitalist powers from Britain to the United States to Germany to France to, you know everybody was yeah. on piling on and so they uh, became a kind of a garrison state to defend their revolution mm. uh, and it it ultimately led to Stalin uh, but what Stalin did you know when you when you first had the Communist Party in Russia uh, they were uh, you know people like Trotsky, we're saying the only salvation for our revolution is if it spreads to the industrial powers. So they were they were all for helping uh, global revolution by right. workers, and 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 there was the common turn, and you know there there, there really was a uh, an idea of a world revolution. But yes. once Stalin came in, he actually did the opposite. He he advocated socialism in one country. Uh, and said, you know, Russia needs to develop itself, and he, and he created a sort of a, a military state uh, that uh, that you know did develop Russia. There was a miraculous expansion of Russia as an industrial power right. under this kind of military uh, cont- uh, pl- state planning model, mm-hmm. and they did they did you know grab themselves by their bootstraps, and they did. Uh, Industrials, and of course, they had to fight World War II, which caused massive destruction of Russia. Twenty million, thirty million people killed, and uh, and stuff. But they still, you know, they survived all that. It was it was pretty amazing, and not a pleasant situation. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people died through repressive measures yes. that get involved. But you know, Americans were left with this outmoded notion that the Comintern was out there to. Uh, uh, you know, take over the United States, take over Europe, uh, rule the world. And there was this, you know, series of red scares in the U.S. in the 20s and 30s and uh, and then in the 50s uh, that, you know, we were going to be taken over by the Russians. It was ludicrous. You know, the United States was so vastly more powerful than the rest of the world after World War II. The idea that Russia was going to take us over was absurd. But... Um, then, you know, and we were afraid of red China taking us over, even more backward country. You know, it was, it was just absurd. So, but 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 it played well for the military to have that kind of scaremongering mm-hmm. going on. 
And so here we are now, you know, we, 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 Russia uh, is no longer a communist country. China is barely, uh, uh, it's a, a communist country in name only. Right. Um, and uh, you, you have to look really hard to find a communist country now. You know, Cuba, more than most, has managed to keep some of their communist model. Uh, Laos, which I visited mm-hmm. in 95, I, I think is also losing it. But, you know, when I went there in 95, it was still a communist country. Very little uh, business, private ownership. Uh, and then, you know, I don't know, where else do you look? Vietnam is not a, really a communist country. Um, it's increasingly capitalist. So, it, you know, it, it doesn't, <laughs> there is no communism. So, um, so the, the Cold War is something different now. It's, an, it's, an, it's back to a sort of old-fashioned Metternichian, you know, vying for power among a, a variety of nations. Um, and uh, the U.S. being the most powerful of them militarily by far. Oh, yeah. Um, there's, there's no other country in the let, – let me just state this flatly. There is no other country in the world that is a – uh, existential threat to the United States uh, beyond the, the possibility uh, that uh, that this, uh, that the Russians could destroy us uh, if we were stupid enough to go head to head in a nuclear conflict. But 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 even that, you know, is is ludicrous because we would destroy ourselves if we unleashed our nuclear uh, weapons yes. against Russia. Yeah. It- so. It's just unthinkable nuclear war, and your article. And, and yet, and yet, you know, it's you're right. It, it is unthinkable. I mean, there's, there's, we, we currently there are 1,600 nuclear warheads in that are activated uh, and and ready to to be launched and exploded or dropped and exploded on either side, the U.S. and uh, and Russia, and uh, and then another 4,000 or so that are uh, in storage but could be used, you know, if they were a crisis and they wanted to expand the number. But, you know, even the 1,600 warheads of one of these countries would destroy the, the world. Oh, yeah. So, um, so let's, just, let's just put those aside and say this is, this is absurd, right? But, uh, you know, there's not going to be a war by Russia to conquer the United States. There's not going to be a war by... The, China to conquer the United States. No country is going to conquer the United States. The United States is destroying itself because of the size of its military. Wow. And and to give you an example of that, the United, the U.S. military, uh, the the latest estimates from the study they do annually at Brown University's uh, uh, Center for the Cost of War, um, is one point. Three, I think, trillion dollars now per year, if you count all the costs of of the military. One point three trillion. That happens to be almost exactly the amount of money that's collected each year by the IRS in personal income tax and corporate taxes. So think about that. Every dollar that's paid into the IRS by every American uh, family and every corporation that 
that pays taxes, which doesn't include Amazon and stuff. Uh-huh. But, um, right. <laughs> <laughs> but if you take the ones that actually pay taxes and you add all of it up, it just pays for the military. And you could say, well, that's absurd. How could that be? Well, because the rest of the country is funded on debt. Yeah, that's right. And the banks so, just love so, that. Sure. You know, yeah, yeah. That that you know anybody looking at that at those numbers should say what that's crazy, but that's what we're doing. We're 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 funding this gigantic war machine like the the, the world has never seen. You you could probably come up with a close approximation with uh, Rome around you know two hundred BC when it was at the height of its power, and it. It was at that point a, a rotted core uh, with these garrisons r- stretching from the border of Scotland, you know, in the British Isles and, and northern Germany down through all of Europe uh, and around the entire Mediterranean Sea, which was sort of the known Western world was all Rome. And they were controlling it with these hugely expensive garrisons that had to be supplied from from Rome literally from the city of Rome and you know they they had these vast aqueducts that brought water because there was hardly any water in the city of Rome uh they these these epic you know things that had, were gravity fed water coming into Rome from all over the place and, and uh you know, they, 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 the city, they, they, it was it just rotted out from the inside because of the vast taxes it cost to keep that huge army going. And we're doing the same thing. We are. And it's amazing to me how, I mean, you hear Rand Paul and Bernie Sanders, they're the only ones that seem to have the chutzpah to say, hey, this is nuts. This is not helping us. And yet here we are. Once again, you know, fanning the flames of a new Cold War. China and Russia are the bad guys. We need a new Cold War against China and and Russia. So we had lots of action, and still do, in the Middle East ever since the First World War. But China and Russia, you know, since we failed there again and again and again, China and Russia are our new enemies once again. So I wonder, China, could it be that the fact that the Trumpists had that steady drumbeat of accusations that President Joe Biden is a patsy for China, is, could that, is, he, is he motivated by saying, no, I'm not a patsy for China, that that's why we're gearing up again and, and declaring you know, Cold War against China and Russia? No, because it's not just Biden is doing this. This there's a there's been you know Obama started with his you know pivot to Asia. The pivot to Asia was to turn it into a a uh, military threat, and and give a new enemy for to to allow us to spend vast amounts on a, on a you know bigger navy and you know more military bases and everything. And it, it came out of the uh, of the Obama administration, which Biden was a part of, and and he uh, has simply resurrected that uh, concept when he came into office. Trump was trying to, uh, you know, initially move away from you know military confrontation with both those countries, more more so with Russia, because he had, uh, I think, uh, 
you know, personal plans to uh, to benefit financially for his hotel and <laughs> and uh, resort empire by befriending the Russian government. But uh, you know, they're, they're, things get complicated. But uh, but you know, certainly uh, Trump's idea coming in was to make friends with Russia and right. and you know. Uh, drive for better better economic deal with China, but uh, all of that has gone to hell. And uh, I don't think it was well thought out anyway under Trump. And and it, and the personal was probably more important yeah. than than you know, international strategy. But uh, but with Biden, you've got somebody who basically is comfortable dealing with the idea of of a powerful military yes. and with uh, a a uh, you know what 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 is popular popularly referred to as a muscular diplomacy, yeah. but but really but the problem is you know all of this costs vast amounts of money, and it's also very risky because you're you know you're uh, you can only push countries like Russia and China so far, and one of the one of the problems is that we uh, the the I, I think Dan Ellsberg wrote a terrific book The Doomsday Machine in which he shows how. American strategy since the end of World War II, uh, when we started the nuclear era with uh, thinking that we had a monopoly on the bomb and not realizing that it had all been, uh, you know, the secrets had all been spilled to the Russians, the Soviets, uh, that thing leaked like a sieve. Yes. and and we can talk about that because I'm doing a movie on the guy who really gave the secrets to the Russians, Ted Hall, uh-huh. an 18 year 18 year old spy in the in Los Alamos. An amazing story. But um, but what happened was, you know, we we thought we had a monopoly on the bomb. We started massively building, uh, industrializing the production of atomic bombs right after dropping the Nagasaki bomb. Uh, and we're trying to come up with what the Pentagon said was needed, 300 of them, in order to destroy Russia with a, uh, a first strike uh, as a industrial power. And it would have been a, a, an epic holocaust, you know, worse than anything Hitler dreamt of. And um, it didn't happen because the Russians exploded their bomb in August of uh, August 29th of 1949, at a time when the U.S. only had 250 atomic bombs ready and not enough um, B-29s to deliver them mm-hmm. yet, so you know, 1950 probably would have been the target date for destroying the Soviet Union with atomic bombs, had there been no development of atomic bombs in the Soviet Union. But since they got theirs in time, right. uh, that plan was dropped. But then we got, you know, the arms race. And and that that was not anticipated. Like a lot of scientists in the atomic, uh, in the, uh, in Los Alamos, right. especially Niels Bohr uh, and Leo Szilard and a few others, where even Oppenheimer approached Roosevelt on this, the idea was to to uh, or I guess it was Truman he approached was to share the bomb and then get everybody to ban it the same way. It, it, it sounds naive today, but when you think about it, that's what they did with uh, with uh, gas poison gas weapons after World War One. They saw the horrors of the gas, which both sides used on each other. 
and they decided to ban it. And pretty much we've banned gas weapons, yes. you know? Yes. Um, and, and so that was the idea that these scientists who were making this bomb, thinking that they had to beat the Germans to getting it, uh, and then they used it and they saw that how horrific it was. They were, they were really stunned when they saw what was left of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And it was terrifying to the scientists. And they were saying, okay, well now, you know, let's, let's negotiate an end to these things. So it never happens again. Um, but that did be, not happen. It wouldn't be profitable not to build more weapons and more delivery systems, for sure. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about uh, stop pretending Russia and China are military threats. Why the heck is there a new Cold War happening? Our, our guest is Dave Lindorf. And, you know, in terms of actual uh, winning things... We've been at war in Afghanistan since 2001. Uh, and as the movie Hearts and Minds showed, and you talk about Daniel Ellsberg, he's in that, no matter how much is spent on military assaults in Afghanistan, without the support of locals, there is no chance of victory. In Afghanistan, the U.S. has outspent the Taliban by some estimates of 10,000 to 1. Ten thousand to yeah. one has been. A <laughs> we're fighting people. We're fighting people with AKs and homemade bomb devices. Right, uh, uh, and that, we're spending so much. And and as uh, Farid Zakaria says, bigness is not a substitute for brains. Russia got out of Afghanistan. I don't think China ever ever dug itself into that particular quagmire. So just you know, trying to play the devil's advocate. If we just leave as we are supposed to by May 1st, won't Russia and China feel empowered? Uh, no, but the Taliban probably will. <laughs> that's and true. That's, and that's as it should be. I mean, they look, it's you, their you might think yeah. that uh, the Taliban are terrible people, but, uh, you know, who want to oppress women. But, you know, um, women had it best in Afghanistan when there was a pro-Soviet uh, government there, yes. a communist government yes. that was really liberating women. And it was, and it was uh, not a corrupt government. It was, uh, you know, they, they had, they were actually advancing Afghanistan for the first time in, you know, yeah. <laughs> thousands of years. And we destroyed that by, by, you know, the uh, big new Brzezinski said he wanted under Carter, he wanted to make uh, the the Russians we make Afghanistan into into the Soviet Union's Vietnam, and right. and we did. Yes, you know we armed the mujahideen, we trained them, uh, we created a resistance, uh, we gave them Stinger missiles mm -hmm. that could shoot down Russian helicopters, we gave them anti tank weapons, and they and the mujahideen defeated the and drove the. Uh, Russian army out yes. of Afghanistan and gave us what we got, you know, after that we had an Islamic uh, uh, dictatorship, like a religious state. Yeah. But, um, and now we're paying the price of that ever since, but we're not winning. No. We're not going to win. No. And impossible. when, when the U S finally does pull out uh, whenever it is, which we could have done at any point since 2001, um, we'll get what we would have gotten had we pulled out when you know earlier with a lot less blood lost and a lot less uh, trillions of dollars have been spent in Afghanistan. Yes, it's appalling. Trillions. 
And quite frankly, in Vietnam, had we recognized the uh, independent government of Vietnam in 1954 when they pushed the French colonialists out, we could have been exactly where we are now, just doing business yeah, with, with them. with three million people not dead. Yes. Yes, and and the birth and and a, and a whole ecology not destroyed by defoliants. And what has it done? And I'm I'm curious. You know, okay, the the military industrial complex. They they gotta have enemies. They gotta have enemies. What what the heck is their argument for having a new cold war with Russia and China? I, it's beyond me. Well, they, they they make the argument that we had, you know, Russia's being called, uh, I, I've seen it repeatedly called America's existential enemy. Yeah. That's, oh. a, that's totally ludicrous. Russians don't want to conquer Europe. They want to do business with them. Yes. I mean, Putin put it very clearly. He said, we tried that once. It didn't yeah. work. <laughs> Right. You know, they don't, they don't want the They don't want the burden of uh, I, I mean, I'll tell you a funny thing. I I went into East Germany uh, shortly after the wall was not taken down. But that, that that's a misnomer. You know, they they simply busted it open and people could go back and forth. And yeah. it took a long time to take it all down. But, uh, you know, 1990, I went into East Germany through the uh, uh through the checkpoint Charlie, right? With my wife and my five, how old was she? Five-year-old daughter. And and we went in to uh, check out the uh, collapsing Republic, uh, Democratic Republic of East Germany. And uh, it was really interesting. And we, 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 when we were crossing in through checkpoint Charlie, which was the only place Americans were allowed to go in, Germans were walking through the, the uh, uh, Friedensburg gate at that point and they didn't have to go through checkpoint Charlie, but, uh, but we had to go through the old fashioned way through, through the American, uh, zone sure. gate. And, uh, there was an American going through with us who was a, an actor. He was a voice actor. You know, he did ads mm-hmm. in English, uh, for advertisements and, um, and he had a girlfriend in East Germany who was this lovely woman, um, who was a junior high teacher in East Germany. And so we met, she met us with her Russian Volga. They called it their Panzer because it looked like a tank. Um, mm. Lots and lots of chrome mm. and very old. And, and they, they gave us a tour of East Berlin. So we drove around the city and saw a lot of interesting stuff. We, we visited a, a, a housing compound found where most of the people who lived in it were Stasi you know, mm, the secret mm-hmm, police, mm-hmm. really nice houses, nice lawns, uh, wall gated, you know, community. And we drove through there and, and looked at the houses and saw how the, the, you know, the elite yes. police, secret police lived. Um, and then they, they drove us to the outskirts and we came to this, uh, big Russian military base that was still there, you know, and, uh, I mean, they hadn't, withdrawn the military yet and it was this grim looking uh walled in camp uh, you know huge huge thing at the front gate there was a gigantic red star on the wall like about 15 feet high uh in 3d and then there were these uh and it was brick walls about 15 feet high or 12 feet high maybe and on the top was uh barbed wire on those, you know, like not, it wasn't 
coiled wire. It was like three strands of wire on these slanted uh, sure. yeah, metal seen yeah. posts, right? You've seen stuff like that at, uh, sure, you know, spaces. security uh-huh. yeah. places in the U.S. And, and uh, you know, and she said to us, you know, uh, look at the, at the uh, barbed wire. What do you see that looks strange? And I looked at it and I said, I don't know. It looks like bar- typical barbed wire. And she said, well, look which way the um, fence is slanting. Uh-huh. And and I looked, and it was slanting inward into the fort, right? right? And and I said, "What's that about?" And she said, "Because so many Russian soldiers were climbing over the fence and escaping into East East Germany, you know, so yeah. they had the fence to keep them inside the base." So let, let's so, let's assume that that the leaders of Russia. And the leaders of China are not, you know, lots of fun people. They're not uh, liberals, shall we say? But what, what is the justification? I mean, what, how can they, the military, the the, the military-industrial complex, the Pentagon, the massive uh, contractor uh, setup? Why do they? It's not an existential threat. Neither China nor Russia. We may not like them particularly. How do they? I mean, how can we possibly be gearing up for another Cold War? Is it just because they, they've run out of enemies? I mean, do they just panic without, uh, you know, if they couldn't create a new playing field? I mean, what, how- they have run out of enemies. You know, they tried a bunch of things after. You know, we never got a peace dividend after the Vietnam yeah. War. What they did is they tried to find new enemies, and right. the new enemies they tried were they tried the drug war, Not right. and you know <laughs> they tried uh, they tried uh, terrorism. Right, that worked pretty well for a while. I mean, yeah. they they pulled off, they they pulled off a good one with the uh, you know the the. Uh, Twin Towers and the attack on the Pentagon, you know, and I'm not I'm not one of those uh, truthers who say, you know, this was a, a, an inside job. I, I really doubt it just because I don't see how something that complicated right. could have been kept secret. Yeah, absolutely. But um, I, I, I think it's it's reasonable guess that they probably knew yeah. some kind of, yeah. you know, big attack on the U.S. was going to happen. Yes. And, you know didn't really worry about having it happen because, you know, we do know that there was this uh, uh, plan for a new American century that, uh, uh-huh. that, you know, a lot of neoliberals and neoconservatives uh, were part of, which was about uh, creating the, a, a, uh, a support for a major buildup of American military power. And they said, you know, in order to do this, we really need something like uh, a a new Pearl Harbor to right. galvanize American public support for it, and they got it. Oh, you yeah. know that you could you could say, okay, well maybe maybe it just happened, and they grabbed that opportunity. Yeah, well, uh, the sort of Naomi Klein thing, you know, don't don't waste an, a national emergency, right. but um, but uh, you know. Maybe they maybe they orchestrate maybe some some of these guys orchestrated just letting it happen, and maybe it was worse than they thought it would be. But yeah. but whatever you know, it was uh, whether they yeah. took advantage of an opportunity or orchestrated an opportunity, uh, the result was that you know people were scared out of their socks. That mm-hmm. terrorists were everywhere. I remember when the 
towers went down uh, almost within a day or two, uh, our school district up here in suburban Pennsylvania uh, canceled all school trips for the rest of the year because school buses might be a target. Uh. I mean, this was just total lunacy. Right? But it works. Everybody thought there it was the terrorist under every bed, right? Yeah, right. Like like a communist under oh, every bed. It was yes. perfect for building this crazy support for uh, yep. uh, for you know massive spending. But for China, terrorists, not... you don't use it like a, no. a trillion dollar a year military to to fight terrorism. Yeah, it as we're finding out, it doesn't. It you doesn't know, you don't work. need aircraft carriers to kill terrorists or catch them. You you need a good international police force working together. And instead, wow, we're, we go, we're going here. around destroying countries. You know, Syria, Libya, Yemen, uh, Iraq. Uh, all these countries have been destroyed by the United States uh, in the name of fighting terrorism. And, and have we? Have we succeeded in fighting terrorism? No, we create more no. terrorists. Of course we do. When you kill somebody, particularly in an Arab culture, if you kill someone in a family, that yes. whole family becomes your blood enemies. Absolutely. And, and, and needs, you know, and, and so, you know, basically in a, in a society like that, of, of the whole Middle East, when we go after these countries and we bomb them and we kill them and we kill, you know, our, our, we do everything by the air now so that we don't have casualties right. that Americans will be upset about. And so there's very few American casualties, but there's like the, the, the death rate of civilians under American bombs when we do drone attacks and uh, you know and and aerial bombings like Biden just ordered in the on the uh, border checkpoint in eastern Syria uh, with Iraq, and we drop seven blockbuster blockbuster bombs, seven bombs, and and kill twenty two people who we don't even know who those were. You know, it was a yeah. it was a checkpoint. People go through checkpoints. You and know, it, it's just so like, it it serves as the best recruiter they could ever have. Well, let's talk. Absolutely. Let's so talk. Every one of those people that was killed has a family that's, of that's really mad at us now. Of I course. Mean, what a stupid idea. Well, here but, we are but, they're talking about, you know, a new Cold War with, with Russia and China and, you know. And Iran. And, and Iran, too. That's right. Oh, my. A lot of blood has been shed fighting over dominance of the Pacific, certainly, in the Second World War. And China under Xi does appear to be more aggressive, more brutal, and more militarized. And Biden's new defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, recently put it this way. He said, China is our pacing threat. That's the end of the quote. To protect our assets in the region, don't we have to also step up our own capabilities there? There is the, the South China Sea. There's an assumption here that's that's wrong, here, that, that Aston is, is not addressing when he says that, is when American assets are in every part of the globe because we have military uh, bases in 80 countries. Okay, why do we have military bases in every in in 80 countries to protect our bases in 80 countries? <laughs> you know, we've we've put <laughs> really we're we're saying we, we want to be everywhere. We want to dominate the globe and therefore we have to protect our our uh, our dominance by, you know, spending massively uh, against the uh, incipient threats to our um, overreach. It's just totally nuts. You know, like if if uh, you could look at Cuba and see a naval base there that belongs to the United States, 
Right. We pay rent for it. I think we pay a dollar or, or some, some small amount, maybe $100 uh, a month rent uh, for that base. But the lease on it expired a long time ago, and we didn't give it up. And it, I think it was on a 100-year lease, which is long gone. And Cubans don't cash the check. They <laughs> they just stack them up because they don't accept that that uh-huh. uh, we're – that we belong there. And and so there's a very ceremonial thing where they get the check and they don't cash it. I'm trying to make a, a, a parallel. We, in the Caribbean, which is an American sea, yes. we have bases in Puerto Rico. We have bases in, uh, we have a base in Cuba. Um, we have probably got bases elsewhere that I'm not thinking of. And uh, we we simply consider that to be our, Southern Lake, you know, mm-hmm. and and woe and woe to some other country that wants to send ships there. So you know, we feel like we have a right to stop ships coming to Cuba. We feel we have a right to uh, impound oil coming from Venezuela on tankers. Um, you know, we just it's do ours. what we want we in the it. Caribbean. Yes, yes. It's yeah, ours. right. So we do what we want in the Caribbean. But when China does the same thing in the South China Sea. You know, they're the dominant power in Asia. Nobody's going to change that. They simply are. 1.3 billion people and the biggest economy in the world. And that's their their territory, you know, like some of it belongs to the Philippines. Some of it belongs to Vietnam. Some of it belongs to China. But – but let's be honest, you know, they're the big power. Yeah. They want to have control over it. And and we say, oh, no, it's international waters. You know, that's a, that's an aggressive act by the Chinese. But, you know, we were we were running that ocean during the Vietnam War. Yeah. Right. Mm. The South China Sea was all the seventh fleet or whatever fleet it was that was in uh, that was operating off of the coast and sending bombers every day and every night into uh, North Vietnam and South Vietnam, bombing the, the crap out of, uh, you know, the, the citizens of that country. And we didn't think twice about whether we were, uh, you know, we were interfering with the, the independent uh, shipping in the South China Sea. But when China does it now, because we're gone and, um, you know, they're, uh, they're, they're supplanting us because they're much more powerful than they were in the sixties or seventies. Um, that's aggressive, but, but nobody says to the United States, get the hell out of Guantanamo. What are you doing there? You know, like that's international waters. That's a, that's a sovereign country. no, we're allowed to do that because we're the United States. Yeah. But but if China does it, it's considered an existential threat or a incipient threat. Well, I can no, understand economic competition. Economic competition, yeah, that do you know? It's a world economy. Stuff goes everywhere from everywhere, and in terms of the economy, China is growing fast and becoming more competitive. No question. And we buy all their stuff. We do. <laughs> Uh, what about and then there's there's Africa what Biden's predecessor <clears throat> said about countries in Africa lord knows please tell us about China's belt and road project there then there's Europe you write that the real threat posed by Russia and China is commercial and there's also yeah, the, the, and that's a threat right? well yeah because but how we, is that a, a military <laughs> threat 
That's what I don't quite get. The, the U, that's the thing. See, the U.S. looks at everything as a military threat. <laughs> if, if China, if China has a, China wants to, uh, it applies to Russia too. China has this brilliant idea of connecting Asia with Europe with high-speed rail and uh, all-weather roads. Uh, something that's never happened before in the history of the world. It's it's a dramatic thing. I mean, if you looked at it uh, objectively and just said. China is connecting the, the the whole of Eurasia with high-speed rail and all-weather roads. You'd say, you know, just in the abstract, you'd say, what a great idea. You know, that's like unifying the peoples of, you know, most of, of the world. Like what, two, probably 40 or 50 percent of the population of the world is going to be all connected uh, by land. That's, that's fantastic, right? Yeah. I mean, that should be a good thing. But it's seen as a threat. Because, uh, frankly, the United States controls things because everything goes by water and we have the big Navy. And and also, you know, so we can pinch off uh, transportation, oil, all that stuff can be pinched off by our military. So we like it that way. It gives us a little leverage. If there's roads and rail uh, and pipelines uh-huh. and stuff going sure. through Siberia and, and the Middle East, um, we don't have that control anymore. And that's why... You know, now the Russians right, are building a something called Nord Stream, which right. is a uh, a uh, liquefied natural gas pipeline from Russian uh, gas fields to Europe, right. going underwater through the uh, Baltic Sea. It's a brilliant idea, and uh, it'll supply cheap gas to Europe. And the U.S. says, "Oh, that's a threat." That's a threat to European sovereignty. How the hell is that a threat? Cheaper gas for Europe is mm. not a threat to European sovereignty. <laughs> you know, we're saying you, you can't do that. We're not. We're actually saying that companies that participate in construction of that pipeline are uh, at risk of being uh, subjected to sanctions by the U.S., well, you, you know, you, you talk because about because we don't want to see this thing built. We want to have to. We want Europe to have to buy our natural gas shipped all the way from the U.S. on tankers, which are hugely oh, dangerous. Yes, and um, you know, and and they are much more expensive than what will come through the Nord Stream pipeline. Gosh, I but thought we, we call were that a threat. I thought we were all for free market competition. I, I haven't we've heard that before? Now let's face China. I'm not, you know, they're not nice government. That's the impression I get, that they're, uh, you know, I have a, a first cousin who lived in Hong Kong for quite a while, and he's really, really upset about what China is doing in Hong Kong. They're going to just wipe out freedom there. They're really persecuting the Muslim Uyghurs in Western China. Should we do nothing about that stuff? What can we do? Well, okay. First of all, I lived in China for two years, Shanghai and Xi'an, and I spent five years going in and out of China uh, for Business Week reporting on China. I'm fluent in Chinese, um, and uh, it was my major in college. I, I know I know China pretty well. I got a lot of friends. I also taught journalism at, at Fudan University as a Fulbright uh, scholar, and and a lot of my students are now in Chinese media. And uh, one of them is like a professor at the school where I taught uh, at Fudan. And, and 
I get a lot of information from China from my former students. So I'm, you know, I'm pretty up on what's going on. Let's, they're not happy with their own government, right? I mean, it's, it's a, it, it's, let's, let's say, uh, China is, to my mind, basically a fascist state. It's the definition of a fascist state because it's a unification of the party and the government and the military mm-hmm. and, and capitalism. It's, it's a classic definition of fascism. And, and the ideology of communism is uh, about as, as real as Christianity is as a motive force for American society. Right? It's, just, it's just malice Fantasy. platitudes, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, having said that, it's China's business. It's not our business, right? right? I mean, we can we can object to the treatment of the Uyghurs, and they can con- object to the treatment of blacks and yes. and other people of color in the United Asians, States, uh-huh. and that's fine. You know, they have every right to do that, and so do we. But uh, to say China is our uh, existential enemy because of how they treat the minorities in their eastern districts um, is not sensible. Yeah. You know, we can we can put pressure. We can say, you know, we'll, we'll we could boycott products from uh, Xinjiang because we think that sure. it's exploited labor or prison labor. Right. Uh, that's completely valid. Sure. But don't turn it into saying that we need to have a massive army of two million people in uniform and, you know, a, a, a huge uh, nuclear uh, first strike force of, of uh, Trident missiles and Minuteman missiles and MXs and stuff uh, because of the Uyghurs or because of Nord Stream in Russia. Right. That's, that's that's just totally nuts. So how might how... If we? You know, the reason we're not competitive uh-huh. uh, is is not because of their military uh, actions. It's because we're spending so much on the military that uh, that we don't have, for instance, uh, a national health plan, which would cut our our uh, costs of production at, our, you know, in corporate America by an enormous amount because they have to pay for the health care of their workers. You know, and that that that's not being paid in Europe or in Russia or in China. You know, we, we could do a lot to uh, improve our society. We'd have much better education. The Chinese and the Russians are eating our lunch in terms of educational systems. And and that's because we don't want to spend, you know, federal money on improving education, no. shrinking class sizes, you know, that kind of stuff. All of it comes back to this absurd amount we spend on our military. And, of course, the Republicans don't want us to have public education because people will vote uh, Republican more when they don't have the uh, same critical thinking skills that uh, others have been taught. A uh, little personal editorial opinion in there. Don't let the Democrats off the hook. I mean, oh, my God, you're uh, right. Obama's, Obama's education secretary, Duncan, was... Uh, uh, you know, a, an advocate of privatization too, yeah, and yeah. and the Democrats have have their share of pushing for charter schools and vouchers and all sure. that crap. That's true. Well, I think most Americans really want peace. Now we've given up. You know, we we've, we've somehow come to believe that we are powerless, that our voices don't make a difference. It's not true. We 
Democrats and Republicans want peace, I think. The average person wants peace. That's true. Russians want peace, too, and so do Chinese. And why don't we speak up? The people of the world want peace. Yes, they and do. And the... My my brother just wrote a poem about uh, the uh, it's twenty I think it's twenty years since the death of uh, the guy that wrote um, last night I had the strangest dream it's a wonderful piece anthem that was written in 1950 and uh, mm. at 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 the start of the Korean War you know and and a lot of people must have thought you know in the Korean War holy shit didn't weren't we just here <laughs> you know. <laughs> it was like it was 1955 years after the end of yes. World War II. We're like fighting, you know, the same soldiers were being sent back in. You know, Americans, they, they were using the same equipment from World War II. They were wearing the same helmets, you know, they, they, they barely had chance to undress. And then they had to go back and, and engage in this monstrous war in Korea. So anyway, there's this song. Uh, last night I had the strangest right. dream I ever dreamed before, you know. I, I, you know, I'm a folk singer. When I, when I, as my brother pointed out, he quoted a couple of, of uh, groups that sang that song, and uh, you know, I, it's a song that I cannot sing through mm-hmm. without choking up, mm. and it's not that great a song, you know. Mm-hmm. It's just that the sentiments are so pure and so. Uh, so, and, and so true that all the people in the world want peace, and they'd all be dancing in the streets if somebody yes. if they signed an agreement and banned war. Yes, and it could happen. So it does appear that a new Cold War is the Pentagon's favorite kind of conflict. It's easy. It's an easy, Absolutely. simple picture that it, for painted, and it's for domestic consumption. The, the real war uh, probably will be over the military budget. That's a battle the Pentagon must be confident it can and will win. Uh, will we Americans buy it yet again? Do you think, do you see any momentum for a, a stop to pretending that Russia and China are military threats? Are we starting to get it? I, you know, I don't know. I'm writing a piece right now uh, about the, how quiescent the peace movement is. Yes. And why is it so so quiescent? Yeah. And I, I think there's a there's a real trap that we've fallen into that ha- happened first with the... Uh, uh, I suppose you could go back to the to the Carter administration, which really started the Afghan war. Um, yeah. And uh, and then it was even worse with under Clinton that that, you know, the peace movement has this uh, inability to see the evil of the Democratic Party. And so when the Democrats are in power, the peace movement is sucked uh-huh. into it yeah. and defused, and they think, well, you know, this is better than the Republicans. And but, you know, let's. It, it, I was I was thinking back, you know, like in the '60s and the early '70s, when it was the Vietnam War and the Cold War, uh, the peace movement was militant and massive. Partly, it was the draft, yeah. uh, and the and the number of Americans was significant that were getting killed in these wars, yes. and um, there wasn't any sense that oh the Democrats are good and the Republicans are bad. Right. I mean, they were all bad. We we knew you know it was hey hey LBJ yes. how many kids did you kill today was oh, what yes. we were chanting in the street. That's right. And and you know there was no illusions that that you know they were all bastards and they were all bloodthirsty monsters and and then you know it it started to shift with Carter Carter was like 
you know, a kind of convivial. Yeah, uh, great smile. Uh, <laughs> Good smile, yeah, yeah, right. And and but he, but he started well. He started a you know global confrontation in in uh, Afghanistan yes. on the advice of his national security advisor, who was an absolute Russian hater. I mean, he just thought more, the more dead Russians, the better. Mm. Brzezinski, he yes. was Polish. Yes, and and um, you know from there you went to Clinton, who you know was was really. Uh, you know, terrible in terms of, of peace issues oh, yeah. and interventions. Yep. And then, you know, Obama, the, 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 the Nobel uh, peace laureate sure. who, who, you know, <laughs> it's just horrible. Yeah. Um, and the peace movement just withered in each of these cases. But when the Republicans were in, it would be out in full force, you know, like yeah. protesting U.S. involvement in, in El Salvador and, right. and uh, Contras in Nicaragua. You know, we were in the streets again. Yes. But but we dropped it as soon as, as Obama came in. Well, I... We were good when Bush, yeah. when, when Bush came around. You know, we were back in the streets. But then, you know, now it's Biden. And, uh, you know, Trump, we were we were really out there. Yeah. And now it's Biden. And, you know, the peace movement is withered away. Well, as I have told my, my friends and followers, we got to push. You know, OK, we got a Democrat. It's up to us to push. And nothing's going to change unless we, the people, get out there and push. Well, it's been very interesting discussion. I, it's it's hard to have hope, but we got to keep at it. I mean, we really need to, to, we're not powerless. We are not powerless in this new Cold War. It's nuts. How can people follow your uh, work, Dave Lindorf? Thiscan'tbehappening.net is uh-huh. everything I write shows up there. Uh, even, if, even if it's somewhere else, I put a link uh-huh. to it. You can see everything I write on this can't, this can't be happening dot net thank you so much for being with us and and, and, and stay ahead. tuned for the movie on ted and his, oh, uh, and his exploits uh because it's very very germane the origins of the of the cold war well a, a friend of mine's parents were executed for allegedly selling spe- secrets to the russians but uh, apparently it wasn't uh-huh. them uh, and he never got caught. All right. Well, we'll keep in touch about that. Dave Lindorf, thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy. Thanks for having me on, Bert. Thank you. Thank you.